Welcome to the Dark Side of the Full Moon podcast. I'm Jennifer Silliman, and this show is continuing the conversations started in the award-winning first-ever documentary film about maternal mental health. My journey as an advocate began through the power of storytelling. With this podcast, I hope to create a community of women and professionals sharing their own powerful narratives to let others know they're not alone and help is out there. Keep in mind that some of the stories you will hear may be triggering, but it's important they be told. This podcast is not a replacement for professional help from a licensed medical provider. If you or someone you know is suffering due to a maternal mental health condition, please contact your medical provider or call or text message the Postpartum Support International Helpline at 1-800-944-4773. Now let's continue the conversation. Hi there, everyone, and welcome to another edition of the Dark Side of the Full Moon podcast. I'm joined today by Featherstone, who is a non-binary nurse practitioner and perinatal mental health specialist. They actually organized the Greater Richmond Perinatal Mental Health Coalition and serve parents and partners in Idaho through Eucalyptus Health, which we're going to hear a lot about today. It's a telehealth practice focused on inclusive, accessible, and holistic mental health care. So Featherstone, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much, Jennifer. I'm so excited um, to have you here today. I'm going to have you start off by sharing your personal experience with um, PMADS. And, um, and from there, kind of talk to us about eucalyptus health. I, you just had just mentioned prior to me hitting the record button that this really came from COVID. And so I really want to hear about that. And then we're going to dive into some, some other things too. So go ahead, start with your personal story. Okay. So we are going all the way back to 2009. Um, I was an active duty soldier in the United States Army and I was a military police officer in the army out at Fort Leonard Wood, Missouri. And I was pregnant, my first pregnancy with my husband at the time. And he was my military spouse. Um, and we were very excited because we had initially had a little trouble um, getting pregnant, even though I was 21 and really young and healthy. Um, I was exercising five days a week, being in active duty military, but I think I was just you know, on the thinner side, lots of muscle mass, um, requirements of the job and not having regular cycles. And so I had kind of given up on being able to get pregnant when I wanted to. And, and my job was looking like I was gonna be shipping out. So we stopped trying. And so of course that's when I got pregnant. And I had a really rough like time with the morning sickness and people couldn't like physically tell I was pregnant because I was so fit and still so active. Um, so I was just like a person who puked a lot. <laughs> yeah. I've been there. <laughs> yeah. And it was like, car rides were really bad. Canoeing was really bad. Like anything that could possibly give you motion sickness. It was like 10 times worse. Um, but I was really excited and it reconnected me with my mom who was back home in Virginia. Um, and I had another woman in my unit who got pregnant at the same time, who was our medic. So like she and I had a thing to bond over, which was really great because I feel like being pregnant in the military, like it takes you out of being one of the guys. Like usually I had such like a feeling of camaraderie, but like people treat you like even more different for being pregnant in the military than they do. I feel like in the civilian world, it was like all of a sudden I was made of glass and I didn't want to stop doing my job being a cop. Cause I was like, honestly, like 
where I worked was very rural and quiet and like it was very rare that I was in physical altercations. Um, so I felt like it was safe, but I was immediately taken off the road. So I felt like I was like almost being punished for being pregnant, even though like everyone was really supportive. So I got care with a midwife on post and it was lovely. And I toyed with the idea of a home birth because my mom had a VBAC with a midwife and she had like this lovely experience. So even though I had zero, pretty much zero interest in healthcare as a profession, I'd always heard really lovely things about midwives growing up. Um, so I had care with midwives and I loved it. Um, and I, I was a little bit leery of the physicians on post because of experiences my, my peers had and went into labor, leaking fluid, not having any contractions, but definitely my water broke. And so I finally had to give up on my dream of like this totally unmedicated birth and go in and check myself in. Um, but I was really headstrong and I was so scared of being out of control in the hospital that I was like, well, I'm not going to let anybody even start an IV on me until my midwife is on shift. And, you know, in hindsight, I view that as being part of the fear, but that, that point I was just like, well, this is my plan and this is what we're doing. Um, and you know, from your podcast that that sort of type A personality can really be a stumbling block for people. Um, so they ended up inducing me. It was really uncomfortable. I had all these expectations of myself as being really tough because I was a soldier. And I remember crying on the student midwife's shirt. Like I, I knelt my head against her chest and just sobbed um, because she was just a person that I'd had one prenatal visit with, but just really clicked. And she was so supportive and sweet. And I felt like I was failing for needing medication, but I was terrified of an epidural. And so we did the Nubane in my IV and I must just be one of those fluky people that's really sensitive to opiates because I hallucinated for hours. And I remember like hyperventilating when I was pushing and I pushed for two and a half hours and, and he was OP, which meant that his head was facing the wrong way, even though he was still head down and it just made my pushing like less effective. Um, and it was so stressful and we had a failed forceps attempt and then they finally got him out with a vacuum. Um, and my body, I felt worse after my birth <laughs> than I did after any like war preparation in the army. Like I felt like I'd been hit by a truck, especially like my nether regions. And, and then I had a really hard time with the pediatrician um, because I had been technically in labor for 36 hours before he was born, but really only 12 hours of induction. Um, they were concerned about watching him for Billy Rubin and jaundice. And I had done enough research because I felt so disempowered in this medical environment that I was like, well, I'm going home as soon as I can. And this pediatrician didn't like it and intimated that she was going to call child protective services on me. And I really like got my 21 year old hackles up and was like, well, I'm an MP on this base. And so if you're going to call child protective services, they're going to be accompanied by my unit on this post. And so I was like, you need to call whoever's above you. And like inside my little heart is like humming blur fluttering. Cause I'm like, Jesus Christ, I'm going to get so much trouble for talking like this to a major. Um, but I just had it in my head. I was like, I'm a patient right now. I shouldn't have to be a soldier right now. I shouldn't have to be on and like, flex my authority 
to do what I want to do with me and my family. And so I had like an incredible midwife experience and like a terrible hospital experience. Like we ended up sort of compromising. I went home sooner than she wanted, but it was much closer to what I wanted. And breastfeeding went great. He was like in, in the scheme of things, he was not a difficult baby. Um, but no one had really talked to me about how to discuss in my relationship, like division of labor and advocating for my own needs. So then there's this crux of like, okay, well I can tell that like, I'm starting to get depressed and taking care of the baby is hard. And like taking care of myself is like, just feels like not important. (laughs) So we're just going to focus on the baby and the stress of going back to work, which meant like getting up every morning at like five something, going, running, working out, coming home, breakfast, going back to work, maybe not getting home between five or six, sometimes doing night shifts. And it was just like so much anxiety about going back. And I just got incredibly depressed and my marriage ended up ending like in that, in that first like nine months of having my baby. And there were other complicating factors with the military and I ended up getting out, but my postpartum depression was crippling. I was not myself. I was like a mother robot. I did all the baby things I had to do, but I was just miserable and weepy and irritable. And I had someone in my unit intimate that I was faking my divorce and my postpartum depression to get out so that I could basically like sit on the couch and eat bonbons. And it was like the most infuriating thing because it was from a female sergeant. Um, But But that speaks more, I think, to military culture and the lack of understanding of mental illness, especially when it relates to people having and growing families. So that was my first son. And then I had another pregnancy a few years later when I was in nursing school um, and I miscarried at 12 weeks, which is usually when people are hopeful that they're kind of getting out of that danger zone. Um, And I had no warning. Like my body had kept growing and I was gaining weight and I was feeling very pregnant, but like really less nauseous. So it was feeling like excited and happy. And I was with my second husband and just felt full of joy and hope. And then to go in for my first midwifery appointment at like a hospital in my hometown where I thought like, I'm not going to have all those problems from before. Like these are people I picked. Um, and then it, it just didn't turn out the way I'd hoped. And I was crushed. I was crushed and then I didn't have time or space to stop. Like my life kept going. Like I still had to put on my wedding six weeks later and I had to parent a two-year-old and, 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 and I was in nursing school. So it was just like the piling on of all these stressors and demands on me to still function when I was like falling to pieces because I was so excited to be pregnant again and have like a good birth because I felt like my first birth was like harrowing. Like I was, if I hadn't had midwives, I would have had a C-section. And the idea um, at that point in my time, in time for me to be like cut open was really, really scary. So my third pregnancy was about a year after my miscarriage. And I had really struggled emotionally after that miscarriage. Like I wasn't really eating well. I lost a lot of weight. I stopped having cycles because I was too thin again, but it wasn't from muscle mass. It was just like the depression. Um, And I was over the moon, but I was like, I am not going back in a hospital. I'm not doing it. 
you can't pay me enough. <laughs> and, <laughs> and I reconnected with the same midwife who helped my mom. Oh, so wow. it was this, this older midwife who is incredibly wise and she's a nurse midwife and she just has the most sage and comforting presence. And I came to her and I was like, I'm having a home birth and I'm doing it with you. And she's like, well, I'm not sure about this. And I was like, I am. And so she was like, well, okay, you seem really convinced. Like, okay. And I had anxiety at first about miscarrying. But once I got past that like 14 week mark, I could reassure myself with numbers and we progressed. And then um, he had some questionable ultrasound of his kidneys when we were at our like 18, 20 week mark. And I was like, if this jeopardizes my home birth, so help me God, I'm not having this baby in a hospital. And like inside, I was really preoccupied with it because I was like, I can't go back in the hospital. I can't do it. I was scared. And that fear was masking itself as being obstinate. Like, I'm not doing it and you can't make me do it. Like, let's talk about a, a damaging way for that like military background to like rear its ugly head. Um, lots of themes about authority here. So I ended up, we got our clearance for home birth. He didn't come by his due date. And I was just one of those people. I joked that I felt like a turtle. Like if I got on my back, I wasn't going to be able to get back up. Um, and I have a small frame and I gained a good bit of weight with him. So I just like, it was hard on my body physically, just from a like muscle strength perspective. Cause I was not a runner anymore. Like my first pregnancy, I ran until I was seven months pregnant and I didn't run at all with my second pregnancy because I was out of the military and I just didn't love it as much then and cried because I had like prodromal labor like the night before my due date and she came, my midwife came and checked me and it was not my time and I cried when she told me it wasn't my time. Um, but the day after my due date, I woke up. 7 a.m. to a strong contraction. I was like, oh, I'll just wait on Ben, see if I have any more. And they kept coming and kept getting stronger. And I got up and I called her. And from that first like moment of opening my eyes and realizing I was having contractions to four hours later, I had my son in my arms. Wow. And had this like tub in my teeny tiny living room. Um, I transitioned while I was pacing my tiny apartment and leaning on my dining room chairs. And um, the best part of that whole birth story is my midwife is taking pictures and saying all these sweet things and supporting my, my husband. And she's like, oh, you're gonna love these pictures. And I turned on her and like, my labors just tend to be like snippy and angry just cause I'm so uncomfortable. And I said, Nancy, put down the, effing camera. This isn't a spectator sport. And she very gracefully put away the camera and didn't say another word about it. But it's so funny because she tells other women in that story without attaching my name to it, because I've heard that story in my birth community where I live. And I oh. love that because it's so emblematic of how so many people can be so like deeply uncomfortable that they're even mean to like the people that make them feel safe. But like that midwife, I had 15 minutes of pushing and my nine pound, three ounce baby was there and my pelvis and nether regions were perfectly fine compared to my first baby. Like it felt like victory. It felt like everything had been fixed that had gotten messed up with my first labor and delivery and postpartum. And so I was very vigilant, like 
I'm going to like get help the first sign I get, you know, depressed at all. And I didn't get depressed. I was busy and I took a break from nursing school so that I could be with my baby and my older son. Um, but what started happening to me, like I, I couldn't really identify very well why it was so hard, but like if my, my little one got up on like a playground and there was any sort of height, I would feel like I was like having vertigo and I'd break out in a cold sweat and it was like things were moving in slow motion. And I was like, this isn't depression, but I don't feel right. Like I started avoiding the park, which was really hard when I had two young kids because I was like, I just, I feel terrible. Like it's so stressful. And so it took me a while to identify like what I was dealing with, like postpartum anxiety. Like I figured out that I had depression because I couldn't miss the fact that I had depression after my first baby. But after my second baby, I was like, I feel like I'm otherwise functioning really well, but I had like my first panic attack in my adult life when I was like 25. And it was about a thing like that shouldn't have been bothering me. And it was so bizarre. And I was like, well, now I'm like almost a nurse and like, what, what is happening? Um, so it very much like, you know, my own progression from experiencing pregnancy and my births and how widely different they were. And then my postpartum experiences being so wildly different and knowing that people aren't equipped with scripting about what these illnesses can look like or scenarios about how people who are in a lot of ways like them can experience it and, and how that manifests in like interactions with other people, interactions with their ch kids, um, and even interactions with like within the family, like within the marital relationship or within a partnership. So it's been a really um, long road of my own reproductive experiences that brought me to Eucalyptus Health. So I've been the organizer for the Greater Richmond Perinatal Mental Health Coalition since mid-2019, so about two years now. And I was really pumped up to like network therapists and providers and um, anybody interfacing with families so that people could get the help they need. Because you and I both know that childhood trauma can come from having mentally ill parents. And so taking care of parents really is just taking care of families. And COVID happened and I was not working in perinatal mental health at the time. I was working in a ketamine clinic. Um, so I was dealing with chronic mental health issues, chronic pain issues. And I was hearing from my colleagues and my friends and the postpartum support international community, because I was still tied in with those groups that like OCD is off the charts. Like there is, there was already a deficit of people who are trained in PMADS, but now the need is even greater because people who maybe had a little bit of anxiety now have a very real threat. And it can blow that anxiety out of the water until we're dealing with full-on obsessive compulsive disorder because there are germs, because we don't understand, or we didn't, you know, early last year, how COVID spreads and who is vulnerable and who's not. And what does it mean for my pregnancy? And what does it mean for my spouse who has to go into the office? Or what does it mean when I live in a more communal environment and I have roommates and I don't necessarily have control over my exposure? Like, how do I even manage this? And so I was just hearing this outcry of like, parents are isolated, kids are isolated, 
kids are having more mental health crises and adults don't even have the, the metaphorical spoons, you know, they have only so much bandwidth to take care of themselves and maybe hold down their job or deal with being, heaven forbid, unemployed while dealing with their children's mental health issues. Like it was the perfect mental health storm. And anybody with any history of substance use was at such a higher risk of a use disorder and, and using too much because we're all hurting, we're all scared and we're all alone. And I was just like, oh my gosh, like, what are people doing? Like, I was hearing how there's just this crisis of no one could treat it. Like, even where I live in Richmond, Virginia, there just aren't enough providers who are trained and there's not enough prescribers who are trained. And people are like, I need to refer out this mom. I don't have time in my schedule. And I was just like, oh, I want to be helping, but I can't. I can't. Because ketamine is like statistically you just do not give it to pregnant people, like under any circumstances. And we could treat postpartum clients, but because of the effect on the growing brain, we make moms pump and dump who are, or anybody who's chest feeding pump and dump uh, because we don't have good research reassuring us of safety in infants or toddlers or young children. So it just felt like I was working in an environment where I like almost could not treat parents and could not help parents. So it was like this big part of my skills that I just couldn't use. And it felt like this is the time when my community needs me the most. And I just had enough of a conflict with the clinic that I was at, that I was like, everyone is doing telehealth anyway. I can do telehealth in a state where they do let nurse practitioners practice autonomously. I don't have to practice here in Virginia. I need to just do my research. And because I'm a very like data and numbers driven person, I cross-referenced states that have autonomous nurse practitioner practice and states with poor maternal health outcomes. So we're looking at maternal mortality and maternal morbidity and looking at suicides in the first year and saying, are they deaths of desperation? Are they suicides or drug overdoses? So when we look at those numbers and we cross-reference those lists, Idaho came out on top. Idaho has 100% underserved in mental health counties. Like none of their counties have enough mental health resources. And I know from referring people out for services like that, if you already have a backlog of general psychiatry patients, it's gonna be that much harder for a patient who really needs like immediate intervention. By the time a parent comes forward for care, it's already kind of too late. And they're gonna have the best outcomes the sooner they can be seen. So I reached out to one of the loveliest coordinators for PSI, Postpartum Support International, out in Idaho. And I talked to her about like, what are you seeing with your patients? Like, who do you refer to? What's their wait list? Like, she's like, oh, sometimes moms wait a year. And I just was like, what? And she's like, yeah, some of these parents in rural areas, like they don't live close enough. Not everybody does telehealth. Like prescribers, you can, you can wait a long time. And in my mind, I was like, in a year, you have a different baby and a different family and your life is different. No one can afford. No one can really afford to wait a month, much less a year. And I was like, well, 
apparently this is a place where I can make a difference. And this is a place where I can have the most impact because I know we have more resources in Virginia where I live. And I just started, you know, one step at a time, a million to-do lists, figuring out what I needed to get my business up and running. And I was like, this is going to be a lot of Zoom meetings with people in Idaho because none of them know me. And I'm okay with that. Like I actually identify as an introvert. I do really, really well one-on-one. I don't like huge groups very often. Um, but this is different. Like I am willing to put in the work for this because if I can grow this to be what I want it to be, I can make a really big difference for a lot of families and that'll feel really good. And so I started, you know, reaching out to more PSI coordinators, connecting with doula groups, connecting with midwives, connecting with pediatricians and pelvic floor PTs, lactation, anybody who would interface with a family and be able to say, you know what, I think you might benefit from talking to somebody just to talk, see if you might need therapy, see if you might need meds, just, just sort of explore your options. And the first day that the idea occurred to me was in October and I opened my doors in February and started seeing patients shortly thereafter. And it's just like, in business terms, that's really fast, but I think it's, it's partially because I was motivated because I know that people need it. Wow. I love the fact that you did all that cross-referencing and all that. I'm a very numbers data person too. So, I mean, I can only imagine when you started looking at where those cross points were happening and going, oh my goodness, like, and, and uh, waiting a year um, for an appointment. I mean, you're right. It is not the same. It would not be the same patient a year later. It just wouldn't. Um, wow. So business is good. <laughs> I'm sure. Um, yeah, because I was trying to start to connect the dots between you living in Virginia and then being on being so involved in the, in the Idaho area. So I love how that's kind that kind of like all connected, right? You can prescribe by yeah. seeing a patient by sitting in Virginia and seeing a patient in Idaho. So the way the laws work is that the laws that cover your patient are based on where your patient physically is located. So Virginia laws don't apply to me where I am right now because my patients are all in Idaho. I'm under Idaho laws. I have an Idaho license. So Idaho doesn't care where I'm physically located as long as I have an Idaho license and my patients are in Idaho. But there is a lot of growing and ch- growth and change happening in how the laws are that are governing this because when COVID hit and everything went to telehealth, we didn't necessarily have the infrastructure or the regulations um, to help people navigate like, well, how does all this work? Because not everybody knew like necessarily at the end of 2019, how all this telehealth stuff worked. There, there are a lot of tech startups that are addressing healthcare issues, but those, are, those were the minority rather than the majority. And I knew that I couldn't practice in Virginia because we have different laws about nurse practitioners and collaborative relationships with physicians. Um, And unfortunately that is a barrier to care for a lot of folks because it is hard to have your own business as a nurse practitioner without a collaborative agreement. But the number of collaborations that a physician can do are limited and they don't allow collaborating between nurse practitioners who are newer and older, more seasoned nurse practitioners or say PAs who work in the same field. So 
large organizations don't allow their people to collaborate outside the organization. And it ends up being sort of a federal trade commission monopoly conflict of interest. Um, and I could really get on my soapbox about that. But one of the differences in Idaho is that they see, you know, that their state has need and that they're rural and they're not attracting as many providers. So having a system where you can be mentored by anyone who has more experience that you have anyone you're talking to about the work you're doing and, you know, how can I continue to grow and learn more? That's what they're worried about. And so it's so great because I found a mentor who has a lot of experience, both as a women's health NP and in the psychiatry world, who helped start the first perinatal, you know, inpatient unit at UNC Chapel Hill, um, Chris Rains, who is a fantastic human being. And I'm so happy that she's my mentor because I feel, you know, more supported as a provider that I have someone I can go to with the same background as me and say, hey, this is my patient. This is what we have going on. This is what I tried. What do you think? Um, it's so invaluable as a healthcare provider to have that sort of support so that you're not just feeling like really intimidated by the weight of responsibility on your shoulders. Well, now I'm going to have to reach out to Chris Rains because I have not talked to her in a really long time and she's fantastic. She was a big help with our film, with our documentary. So yeah, she's- uh... Well, your documentary was really instrumental for me. I don't know if you were one of the people from the film that came and talked. Um, they brought Dark Side of the Full Moon to Richmond, Virginia, to the Bird Theater um, back in 2015. I think it was October 2nd. And I attended the film with one of my best and closest friends and the people that were all involved with the Greater Richmond at that point, it was called the Maternal Mental Health Coalition, was sort of um, connected with Dark Side of the Full Moon and putting on the, the showing of the film with a discussion afterwards, a panel discussion. And I remember walking away from it and I was just a, a labor and delivery nurse, or maybe it was right before I got hired as labor and delivery nurse. And I was so jazzed and excited and fired up. And I was like, yeah, that's why I'm going to work in like birth and taking care of families because no one else is doing it right. And people deserve better. I feel like people deserve better has been like my mantra after my first birth. Um, and I don't think it steered me wrong uh, because that midwifery model, I originally started my training as a nurse midwife and I was like, I'm going to base my care on providing people with information and then honoring their autonomy and their decision to choose what's right for them based on the information I've shared. Um, so it's not that hierarchy of like healthcare provider dictating, this is the plan. And then you either go along with it or find a new provider. Like that's, that's a terrible model. Um, and people just get tired of, of shopping for providers or doctors or whoever they're seeing. And then they just don't get the help. And that doesn't fix the problem. Um, so I got real, real jazzed about taking care of families, especially addressing mental health in that context. Um, but I didn't know at that point that I was going to become a psychiatric provider. I just thought I was going to be a midwife. So it was really funny that it all happened the way it did. Well, Featherstone, thank you so much for joining us today. This has been an incredible conversation and I appreciate it so much. I'm so happy to be here, Jennifer. Thank you again.